0: Welcome to Fitness Junk Debunked. I'm your host, Steph Dykstra. I'm here today with Helen Kolias, which who is ILT's resident expert, Dr. Helen colias And I'm also here with Ron Dykstra, our co-founder and program director. I almost forgot about the person sitting next to me. And today our special guest is Maggie Wente, who's also an ILT member. Um, Maggie! Thank you for joining us. Do you want to tell Thanks us for having about me. yourself and your connection to ILT?
1: Sure. So I've been an ILT member for a few years now, and I started uh, coming to kettlebell classes a year or so before that. And uh, yeah, I've been very excited and happy to be a part of the community because you have made a wonderful community uh, that is curious and respectful. And, um, you know, so I've been really happy to be a part of it.
0: Amazing.
1: Happy to have you, for sure. And Maggie, what do you do? Oh, I am a lawyer uh, and I work for First Nations and um, First Nations controlled organizations, if you will, political organizations and governments generally. Um, And I do a a pretty broad practice area, but I tend to focus a little bit on um, aboriginal rights and a lot on equality for children and equality in social services or access to social services for indigenous children or in communities generally as
0: well. Wow, one, one of the thousands of reasons why I love Maggie. Um, Maggie also introduced me to some amazing mangoes, which are pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're pretty amazing. No problem. <laughs> because they're in season, and Helen taught us all about that. Uh, if you haven't taken a look at how to get the tastiest fruits, you can check our Instagram or our Facebook page for some tips from Helen on picking things in season. So we know that it's Pride Month, but it's also National Indigenous History Month. Um, so my my question is, what what does that mean? Like what what do we do during National Indigenous History Month? Like, we, we learn, we celebrate, uh, we broaden what we know about um, Indigenous, uh, First Nations, Inuit, Métis people. What does that mean for you, Maggie?
1: Oh, it's, it's funny actually to think about what it means for me. I'm not actually sure which came first the chicken or the egg no the National Indigenous History Month or the um uh Indigenous Solidarity Day which is not a national holiday but is celebrated on June 21st which is also the summer solstice um so for quite a while now that's been sort of National Aboriginal Day I don't know if they changed the name to Indigenous but and then I think um you know it sort of it became a month because everybody gets a month which i was laughing about the other day because my child informed me that it's also national potty training awareness month oh, so, okay. less <laughs> no person left behind is what i say um so, <laughs> um, so for me i mean my um I come from a mixed family, but um, you know, the my mom's side of the family is Anishinaabe, from which is Ojibwe, from the North Shore of Lake Huron, a place called Sirgenton River First Nation. Um, my grandmother is was a residential school survivor. She passed away when I was in my early twenties. Um, so I, I'm pretty immersed in these issues and in the communities that I work with and the communities, you know, my social communities and stuff. Um, uh, to me i don't know you might feel the same way about black history month stuff like to me i sort of feel like it's an ob- it's a month that's like contains with it some obligation i suppose to attempt to try to kind of educate people or build solidarity um it's nice like i do think that you know it's good for people to have their attention be drawn to uh, Indigenous history, and particularly this year, given that the month kind of started off with the discovery of the 215 children's bodies at the Kamloops Indian Residential School, that's something that I hope people will take with them throughout the month and, you know, commit themselves to learning about Indigenous issues. But, you know, I can't say that I feel like super celebratory at any given time.
0: <laughs> that, yeah, and that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, again, thank you for talking to us about what happened, because that really shocked A lot of people there was a camp camp of people that were shocked and a camp of people that weren't shocked and then I would like to say that there was another camp of people and I'm in I'm in this camp I'm I guess I have limbs in other both camps where I was embarrassed to not know um what what was happening in the country that I live in um so there was embarrassment uh not so much shocked like nothing really shocks me in terms of policy Mm and uh colonial policy. But that's gonna take us into this episode, which is episode six of Fitness Junk Debunked and it's indigenous health and the residential school system. So thank you for um, being a part of this safe space for us to be curious, ask questions. And um, we know that we're not going to get into, I always say into the thick of it now, because that's like a, a trending song that I hear all the time, remix <laughs> 10,000 different ways but we're not going to, you're not going to learn everything on this podcast. You're going to learn a little bit, tiny bit on this video recording and podcast. And um, you shared with me a uh, presentation you did for uh, your kid's school, uh, whereby it's, it's kind of understood that it's up to us to continue to learn daily beyond this month. And that's I feel that way about other months as well, where it's like, this is the month and everybody tries to like cram for it. And it's like, well, you can't, that's not how, that's not how continued education works. You have to continue to do the work, which it's like fitness in that way. You have to be consistent. Um, you have to work on habits um, that will help you understand the world around you and better connect with community. Um, so. Again, thank, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to be, I'm so honored and grateful that you're you helping. thanked me
1: so many times. It's like you're from Nova Scotia. People from Nova Scotia are always like, thank you. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> so I think I will hand it back to you, Maggie. And I guess let's talk about the history and the present day of residential school systems and their impact.
1: Sure. I mean, I, 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 I. I appreciate that you're kind of just giving me an open platform. I'll try to do as much as I can in the time we have. Um, yeah, so I mean, to start with your comment that you said, like you sort of felt ashamed. I think that that is something, or like guilty that you didn't know all of these things. and. Sure. Like, you know, I think that that's an appropriate feeling. I think it's appropriate to feel uncomfortable about the fact that you didn't know these things, particularly because we had a whole Royal Commission called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which released a report in uh, 2015, which was many, many volumes which kind of detailed things about the horrors of the residential school system. And for whatever reason, um, there were lots of public hearings, there were hearings in which residential school survivors shared their stories, there was archival research, there was this seven-volume report, which I appreciate is, you know, maybe a bit much for most people, and there was a bit of media coverage, but for whatever reason, I, you know, I think in some circles that really resonated and people paid attention, but I do think that there was a huge amount of not, non-attention to it, right, like within mainstream media or bringing people's um, minds, bringing that to the forefront of people's minds. And other than that i mean i think you know people this is not something that is particularly well covered in schools as certainly when we were going to school this is like not something that people talked about um so i mean i'm a pretty resilient person and like very happy to chat with people about this and so i'm happy to kind of be asked to be to do this it was the same reason why i put my hand up and said to my kids school because I'd ask them like, are they? Did you talk about Kamloops this week? Did you talk about residential school? And they were like, no. And I was like, um. So I emailed the school right away, uh, because. It's not well covered in the curriculum. Uh, The current government, I think, kind of reduced or canceled the sort of updated curriculum on Indigenous issues. So I'm not sure that we'll be able to expect that it's gonna get covered super well there. And people have discomfort. Teachers have discomfort teaching this curriculum, I think probably, or teaching whatever, uh, you know, resources they have. Um, So about, yeah, like there's people who are shocked. I I wonder sometimes if that shock is actually more an like, or at least partially an expression of the kind of grief or guilt or um, surprise and sadness that people feel about the fact that, like, they didn't know this, that obviously we all benefit from a colonial system, you know, one sort of pillar of which was residential schools, etc. I try to be forgiving uh, some days as much as I can. I try to be forgiving about people's shock and sort of desire to emote about it. I mean, other times, not so much, like, I sure you can imagine because this is like seems to have been sort of the last 16 months a lot of discourse about sort of race and colonialism issues but like you know when Susan from kindergarten is like reaching out to me asking to talk I'm like I, I don't have time Susan. right, right. <laughs> um, okay but anyway all of that <laughs> to say this is for Susan <laughs> <laughs> Susan's of the world um, right. can, can learn of this so um I think the kinds of things that I want to explain or or like think about in terms of the history of the residential school system is one thing that I think is like important to debunk if we're here to debunk things is that this is not something that happened in the very, very distant past. Um, this is something that happened where the last residential school closed in 1996. So like that's after I started university. I have friends who are my age uh, who went to residential school. And um, you know, as they say, my grandmother went to residential school, and there's lots of present-day sort of living survivors here. Um, the system kind of had its roots in the sort of 1820s, 1830s, but it really took hold in the uh, it just kind of post Confederation. There were a bunch of uh, education studies, including uh, probably people know this now because of the toppling of the statute at Ryerson statue at Sir Ryerson University, um, but Egerton Ryerson. historical figure who uh, you know purported to do this study about proper education for all Canadian children and you know is hailed I think as being sort of the you know the founder of public education he had recommended that there be publicly funded education for all children in Canada but he also had recommended that there be uh, separate schools for First Nations children um, for a variety of reasons. And he's not the only one. There's a lot of different people who, um, you know, were advocates and architects of the residential school system. But, um, and they really started kind of opening up, like in the 1860s, uh, 1870s. And, you know, the former prime minister, the, Johnny MacDonald, his his point is what he said about the school system was basically to, you uh, Remove Indigenous or First Nations children from their families, remove them from their parents, and that—that is the only way to assimilate them, to make them think and act like white people. And, um, and you know, there were statements that Duncan, like Duncan Campbell Scott, I think it was, who's a historical figure, like this Indian agent guy who was like running around First Nations communities. He said that the purpose of the school was to kill the Indian in the child. and so it, what's interesting to me is despite all of this evidence, there are still kind of residential school denialists all over the place. who are like, well, you know, maybe they were just trying to give people a school and a place to go. And, you know, the parents wanted this. It was, you know, there's some treaty provisions in uh, about education and some of the treaties and whatever. But I mean, that may be true that people wanted education First Nations people wanted education for their children but they certainly I don't think understood that the premise of the system was to kill the Indian and the child or um, you know entirely assimilate uh, First Nations folks so um, the schools kind of sort of around the turn of the century 1896 there were around 60 schools and then in 1920 So, like, that's just 100 years ago, right? Like, I think, again, this tendency to be like, this was so far in the past. It's not. Mm -hmm. That's that's when the schools became mandatory. And so what happened there is the the government kind of contracted with various churches, primarily the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, to run the schools. And in 1920, the schools became mandatory. And that's when um, people were authorized to go onto the reserves and forcibly remove the children from... um, from their parents and take them in. And that happened for kids sometimes as young as three. It was supposed to, I think, theoretically, be for kids around five and stay till they're 16. Some children were big, right? Like I remember talking to someone I know who works in a, uh, com- or lives in a community where I was working and he said, well, I was a tall kid. And so they took me and I was three. And he ran away and he ran away many, many times over the course of uh, his time in school because he didn't wanna be there and sometimes people were allowed to go home in summer to see their families uh not always it was like sort of at the whim of the the church and the the state and um and sometimes they went home sort of at Christmas holiday but again not always and uh that's sort of you know they became unmandatory again at some period but the school still existed and until 1996 as I say and um you know, then they were introduced into the Inuit communities only in the 50s. Um, and so that's sort of kind of the progression of them. And there were also things called day schools, there were a bunch of different varieties of church or state run schools which indigenous children were taken away. Um, in the day schools they they went home at night, but they were also sort of a place where abuse was experienced. So. The kind of defining features of life at the schools as far as we know is that um, there was widespread maltreatment of, uh, of the children. Uh, there was may, there's many, many accounts of physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse by the people running the school. always that there was not enough food and that children were hungry and we're gonna circle back to that one later, right, right. And the, they didn't get adequate medical medical care. There were nutritional experiments and other kinds of medical experiments conducted on children um and there was lots of uh, there were accounts of people being killed by the children being killed by the staff or beaten by the staff to the point of death and being buried on the grounds which is what we hear about at Kamloops now so at, um, this,
0: at this point in time in the system people were speaking out about this but the government was like that's not a thing. And the Catholic church was basically like, people are dying of tuberculosis rather than stating what was really happening. So it wasn't, it wasn't just like this was happening and nobody knew and nobody was saying anything. People were yeah. coming forward and speaking about the massive traumas that were happening at the time.
1: Sure, there, was a, there were a couple of sort of brave souls um, who had gone around. So there was a doctor named Dr. Bryce And he had gone to do a review of the schools and he had noted that even within the schools, like present day student body would have like a 25% death rate um, and that children often died shortly after leaving leaving the schools like had a premature death up to sometimes 70% of children would have premature deaths um, after leaving the schools.
2: That's huge.
1: yeah Yeah, and and then as you say like the generally the deaths were recorded as being tuberculosis related which is funny because I actually was like reading on Twitter the other day of some uh, just a historian had posted because uh he had posted and he said I study uh disease in prison history and he was like there was never a 25% death rate from tuberculosis in any prison around the same amount of time and you would imagine you know, in some senses, similar conditions. So, you know, it stands for reason that other things are going on. And certainly the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had found that uh, they knew that there were, they knew of 4,100 children in Canada who had died while they were at the school, but they have estimated, and the um, person who was the chair of that commission, Justice Marie Sinclair, he estimates, he thinks maybe, if we start doing this work, it's gonna be, we're gonna maybe find, you know, kind of up to 25,000 bodies um, of children buried in unmarked graves on the grounds. Um, and then the other really primary feature, which is, you know, not everybody experienced emotional abuse or sexual abuse or physical abuse necessarily, but the kind of overwhelming experience was that when you went, you were made to not practice any spiritual traditions you had, you were not allowed to speak your, um, indigenous language. And you were told that you were inferior all of the time. You were made to feel ashamed and nobody loved you. And so as it turns out, now we know this causes extraordinary kind of future effects in the psychology of people who went to the schools and their children and grandchildren, which we call intergenerational trauma. And also, um, we also now know really kind of new stuff that I don't know too, too much about, but the study of epigenetics is this... Um, you know, tells us that I guess genetic markers of trauma can like basically implant yourself in the DNA of, 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 a, of a people or of a person and c- get passed down through generations so that there's in fact sort of physical long term effects of this trauma but like at its most basic, you know, people would say if you really want to boil it down like how you learn to be a parent is by how you were parented and some people make choices to parent differently than their own parents. Um, but. Uh, no one who went to residential school has really learned how to, how to be parented and how to be a parent. And so when it came time for them to have their own families, this continues to sort of cause effects, um, you know, and trauma as, as we go down. And then also, as we know, people in all, uh, you know, demographic groups who experience abuse are often then perpetrators of abuse themselves. And we have all kinds of health effects that have rolled out from residential school. Uh, which, you know, all kind of continue today to some extent in anyone, in any Indigenous person's family.
0: Right, right, um, that, that, it's, it's horrifying and horrible, and terrible, deplorable, all the, all the words. (laughs) Um, One of the things that, well, there's several things, one of the things that leapt out um, at me was in these residential schools, a lot of the children, again, children, were starving. Yeah. Um, so they were starving and also made to do hard labor. So these were children who weren't eating, uh, hungry bellies, and forced to do labor. And it was kind of, not kind of, it was spun to make it seem like it was an indigenous problem and not a colonial policy problem um, in terms of uh, taking land where uh, Native people grew food or hunted food, making hunting and trapping policies um, and things that nature. Would you care to expand on that a little bit more or?
1: Yeah, so I mean for sure there was I think um, you know, what we've read now in the historical research that's been done about nutritional experiments, there was certainly, um, I think some kind of zeitgeist around the, the medical population or the colonizer population that health problems um, that indigenous people experience either at the schools or after were a result of their poor genetics and not a result of anything else but the school as you pointed out um, the schools are just kind of one pillar of a huge sort of edifice of colonialism, and a lot of that colonialism, you're quite right, uh, resulted in Indigenous people being deprived of their traditional ways of living, their traditional recreational practices, their traditional um, foods, and their ability to kind of sustain themselves as they have on this land forever. So you know, one of the things, for instance, that the government did in the prairies is they did this thing called clearing the plains, right? They uh, kind of got rid of buffalo populations or bison populations, which was the foods of uh, the Plains Cree, and uh, offered in exchange or said, you know, well, you better go live on these reserves now and we'll provide you food on the reserves now. Um you know, changing the way that the traditional economies worked. So trying to encourage people to farm and settle land as opposed to hunt. Uh, Banning hunting, and that's something that continues to this day. I have a a hunting trial about caribou hunting in uh, Labrador right now for the Innu who have lived and hunted caribou for millennia and millennia in Mm -hmm. Labrador. And uh, when they have those you know, traditional food and recreation sources and confining people to reserves, basically are changing and getting, you know, getting rid of their entire culture, but a lot of it centers on foods in reality.
0: Right, right. Um, so we, again, uh, if you're listening, uh, make sure you have some water and hunker down. I, I know this is tough stuff to listen to, but it's important and it's important to broaden your perspective on what's, what's happening in our country around us. And like some of you might be thinking, what does this have to do with fitness junk debunked? Um, so we, we know about the recent news about the residential schools and we are acknowledging the experience and the environment of people exposed to that in early life and how that affects health overall. So that's mental health, um, physical health, spiritual health, Um, being denied, um, access to who you are, your roots, but also like just disconnecting you and not loving you, which is a part of pride is like loving somebody for who they are openly and not having to hide that. Um, which we talked about in our previous episode, um, like circling back to what we're talking about now, um, we kind of touched on the Canada food guide. So this is, this is. Like I said, there's a lot to talk about, but Canada Food Guide we all grew up on it. When were you introduced to the Canada Food Guide, Ron?
2: Elementary
0: school. Like yeah. Secondary.
3: Maybe, yeah. You know I mean? How about you, Helen? Yeah, sometime in elementary school, but it's a bit
0: hazy. But yeah, some sometime during elementary school. Right, and it was like you got so much of dairy, so much yeah. of wheat products, so much of meat, and then they changed that in was it 2013, Helen? That, that uh, was? 2019. It wasn't until 2019 yeah. it was changed. And Helen, why was it
3: changed? Um, why was it changed? Uh, well, I think it there wasn't act, It wasn't actually that much research based, and it wasn't. Well, it wasn't working. I think is kind of the bottom line. If you know, if you looked at at people's what people were eating, um, it wasn't working. And, and they it was actually interesting that they actually isolated the, the people that were working on it from any political groups. And there was some people that were a little upset yeah. that they didn't have influence on it. So, it's a more neutral, politically independent um, guide than it was before. And it moved away from, you know, like meat and dairy to like, hey, there's vegetarian options, there's vegan options. So, it's, and it's kind of more um, accessible to different ethnicities, right? So, there's people, there's people, for religious reasons or whatever reasons, they don't eat meat and so that, or animal products, so it allows for that. And it shifted towards, you know, eating more mindfully eating more protein, lean protein, wherever the source of protein is, eating less processed food, this probably sounds familiar, yeah. um, eating more vegetables and fruits. So, it, it, you know, arguably it's if you talk to any great, anybody's great grandmother, she'd be like, yeah. <laughs> like, this is not a surprise, like wherever in the world. So I think it, it went to a more, I think, um, culturally neutral place and more actually driven by actual research. Right, which, which is a bit, um, what's the word? Uh, given what we, we will hear about with what happened with the original Canada Food Guide, seems kind of right. Even more tragic. Right. And, and, yeah.
0: So what we're what we're going to get into now, and what um, Helen segwaying to is the origin of the Canada Food Guide and what it was based on, which. I'm gonna be perfectly honest, I didn't learn until last night at 11.30 p.m. Yeah, I had no idea
1: either. Like, Maggie Yeah, I mean, look, neither did I, and I'm no expert. So, I I mean, I know because my friend, this historian, Ian Mosby, kind of found this stuff out, so.
0: Right, so uh, Maggie sent an article and uh, we took a look at it last night and it just changed the direction we were taking with this podcast uh and I, I think in a good way it's a it's a harder turn but i think it's in a good way so again i'm gonna again because it, your friend put you onto the research behind what mm-hmm. we're going to talk about next i'm going to turn it back to maggie and we're going to talk about where they got the intel for the canada food guide that we all grew up and were introduced uh, to in elementary so
1: so at least in part, they got some of the intel from uh, experiments on children in residential schools in the 40s and 50s. And so apparently the sort of founder of the Canada Food Guide, and I, as I say, I'm no expert in this, but uh, you know, I've read a little bit about it. The founder of the Canada or creator of the Canada Food Guide uh, had some questions when they were kind of thinking about foods and things, and, and they had a, a great and obviously sarcastic, um, a great uh, research ground in residential schools because there were children who were starving and malnourished there because, as I said before, I think one of the things that uh, all kids who went to residential school would say was that there was never enough food. Um, And so the kids were malnourished and... Uh, they conducted certain kinds of experiments on them like fortifying flowers or like how do we how to wire people anemic or doing all these kinds of things which resulted in blood tests so how this came about or how this research came about is I think that there had been some discussion of it quite a while ago but there's a, a gentleman named Ian Mosby who's a professor at Ryerson University at the time, he wasn't a professor. I think he might have actually still been doing his doctoral research or his postdoctoral research. But, and he he's a food historian. He had nothing to do with Indigenous issues, etc. But while he was doing his research, he discovered all of these records about these experiments on children. And this is sort of in 2005, 2006 that he's finding this stuff, and um, kind of records about the nutritional experiments that they were doing. And uh, how that led to the Canada Food Guide, because he was looking at stuff about the Canada Food Guide, and he does stuff about wartime gardens, and you know, remarkably and wonderfully, he he followed that he followed that path. You know, it wasn't the path that he was trying to do for the research that he was doing at the time, but he said, I have to I have to find out more about this, and it became. I mean, it became kind of, I think, something that, like, surely he could not have expected, um, and I think lots of people couldn't expect, but it was actually a very welcome thing to kind of uncover, I think, because there are people who have those experiments conducted on them who are still alive, who live in communities, and, uh, you know, Ian was able to visit those communities after the research was made public, and, uh, you know, a lot of communities brought him in to tell their Uh, their their members the older people what had happened to them because they knew I'm sure as children that something weird was happening to them Um, but all all of this of course was conducted without the consent of any of the parents etc and led to kids getting further sick because they were kind of in some case I read there was an instance where they were trying to test about anemia and children ended up more anemic and they're like shrug that's okay Um, but yeah it's so that's super strange. I mean, there, and there's a whole movement again called like Indigenous food sovereignty, which is this desire to kind of um, have Indigenous people kind of be able to go back and think about what traditional foods were and um, reinstitute some of those practices, like, which is really remarkable. But I mean, and in, in, in many ways, still very, very controlled by the state for lots of reasons, one of which, for instance, I work on this caribou hunting trial. In Newfoundland and Labrador, and they've banned caribou hunting there for conservation reasons. And the, you know, who knows why the caribou are in decline? The caribou populations go really up and down um, historically, and there's certainly been caribou famines in the past. But, um, you know, there's also declining caribou populations because of climate change and habitat loss, et cetera. Anyway, point being, my clients aren't allowed to hunt caribou, which is, I will say, literally the core of their existence. Everything in their life traditionally. Uh, until they were settled in the 50s was caribou. Their clothes, their shoes, their vehicles, their homes, uh, their food, everything was revolving around caribou and that entire way of life has been removed from them because of um, hunting bans being imposed for conservation purposes. But there are lots of movements to try to kind of restore and think about traditional food systems, et cetera. But it, it is a big part of the colonial policy is to just remove those kinds of things from people. And people have health effects. If you look at the elders in the communities I work with who grew up on the land, and let's talk about growing up on the land, like you're walking you know, thousands of kilometers every winter, uh, every day, making your towns, you're hunting, you're doing all of these things, you're leading an extremely active lifestyle. And the elders in that community, I mean, they're fit. Right? Like they've spent their whole lives eating caribou and and you know, not a lot else. There's if you just eat a traditional diet in Labrador, there'sn't a lot else. There's some fish sometimes and little birds and other kinds of critters, porcupine and stuff. Um and you know, the since since those communities were settled in the 50s, you know, health has really steeply declined and life expectancy has has declined in those communities. And it's got a lot to do with food.
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh just want to interrupt briefly and say that we see this effect of colonialism all over the world. Um, 100%. Polynesian islands, uh, for example, um, the, the Tongans, the Samoans, the Fijians, these people lived active, healthy lifestyles uh, prior to colonization and post-colonization, uh, fast food and um, uh, processed foods have basically changed. The, the people themselves, they they no longer bear much resemblance to their ancestors, and uh, the health ramifications are are direct, and we see this in Canada as well now, obviously, and everywhere, mm-hmm. colonialism has touched.
1: Yeah, one of the things about Ian's research that he had done, or kind of drawn a link with, was this suggestion um, that had grown in the medical community, I guess, that um, First Nations people are prone to diabetes, and he's like, well sure if you're fed crap food your whole life when you're a child and you're malnourished and then you're exposed to these things that aren't your traditional foods and experiments are conducted on you sure then you're prone to diabetes but it's not it's not a genetic thing it's an environmental thing which has arisen because of colonialism and you're right you see similar stories all over the world
0: so go, going back to these experiments, one of the things that jumped out about the article, which we'll po- I have to figure out a way to post it, it's from the, um, is it CBC?
1: Yeah, yeah. it was a C- yeah. longer CBC. And Ian, if you look up Ian, you can see lectures of him online. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff about these experiments, because it has been really widely picked up.
0: So the article that we're referencing is called Unreserved, the Dark History of Canada's Food Diet, How experiments on indigenous children shaped nutrition policy. And again, these were experiments. So one of the things that left out about these experiments is that to do that, some kids would get um, a vitamin to see how they would react, let's say vitamin C. And then other kids were given a placebo. So they were actively harming the kids that were already malnourished by not giving them what they need. So they knew they were malnutritioned and they needed they needed nutrients, they needed food, they were working hard, and they held that back in the name of proving something again with no permission, like zero permission. And it's like who would give permission? So that's why they just went ahead and did what they wanted. Which <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> just it's it it blows my mind that this stuff can happen, but like we're saying, this is a lot of a lot of systems are affected by this. Like we've talked about like just in our short conversation and on the little that we've touched on, we've talked about education, we've talked about medicine, we've talked about nutrition and like how food is processed. And these are just what, three systems, we can probably come up with more systems that are affected by um, colonialism policy. Sure. Um, Yeah, so again, the article by the CBC, a great, eye-opener place to start. Um, So where do we begin to unlearn? Where would you suggest that we get started um, even with teaching kids, um, people with parents that have kids, where can we start to begin this journey of unlearning and relearning what actually happened versus what was spun to us?
1: Yeah, so um, what's magnificent is there's actually a ton of resources. I mean, obviously, there's the entire Royal Commission report, uh, and there's a, you know, a summary and stuff about what happened uh, for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, what happened. Um, and, you know, with respect to Indigenous issues also, there's the report of the um, National Inquiry into murdering and Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls uh, so there's no shortage of reports, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, that came out when I was in university. Um, there's no shortage of government reports about where to learn about Indigenous people, but yeah, the, those aren't necessarily super accessible, I would say. But there's also movies. You can go on the National Film Board's website and watch tons and tons of documentaries about uh Indigenous Canada relations some of which are very old um you know and some of which are are brand new any book you read by an Indigenous author any book has a relation to residential schools in it um uh, but some of the ones that I've loved uh a book by Richard Wagamese called Indian Horse which is uh, a book about residential schools and it's a book about hockey uh and it's like it's a wonderful book it's a bit of a gut punch to be honest but um in some places, but it's also beautifully written. And if you're a hockey fan, I think people would really like it because it's uh, the narrative about how hockey is played is really wonderfully written as someone who's a non hockey fan. But as an outsider, I, I loved that book. Um, there's lots of children's books. So we'll post that kind of stuff up. But like, where do we go from here? I mean, to me, I always feel like you have to know like GI Joe knowing is half the battle. Right? <laughs> um, so you have to know what happened. And I you know there's things we can refuse to in this country just to kind of accept the ongoing oppression and inequality of indigenous people, but you have to make your voice known right Um you have to let you know your politicians know that this is not acceptable to you. Uh, the the oppression and and sort of colonialism of the world didn't end when residential schools closed in fact it continues onward in so many ways. So now we have child welfare, uh, provincial and state imposed child welfare systems, which result in indigenous kids disproportionately, way, way disproportionately um, ending up in uh, foster care, et cetera, and kind of repeating these traumas that exist when people are taken from their homes. And I work on a case, which is about the underfunding of child welfare services and particularly underfunding the kinds of services that keep families together. Uh, which are called prevention services in the child welfare world, um, and, and you know, there's a lot of research about how this then results in this. They call it like the child welfare to prison pipeline, right? Like, you know, lots of people who Indigenous people are are terribly over-incarcerated, and um, you know, there's you know reasons for that sort of disproportionate sentencing and whatever. But there is also disproportionate involvement of the criminal justice system. And a lot of those people are came from the child welfare system. And we just don't have equality basically for any kinds of services for health services, for housing services, for infrastructure like drinking water services, for child welfare, uh, for education. None of those systems are funded on the same way that they are, at the same levels that they are for um, non-first Nations uh, children and families and individuals. So I always say like, you know we could try pol- uh, equality as a policy objective that's something that's never been tried in this country before right um which which is like a bananas thing to say but like we could try that yeah and actually equality is the foundation of liberal liberal governments or not bigger liberal governments but like smaller liberal political philosophy and i i don't understand how it's not a choice that we pursue (laughs) because to me and i'm not a social scientist obviously but to me it just seems to me like very obvious that if we tried equality for a few generations and um you know trying to have people starting on an equal footing and continuing on an equal footing lots of these problems might go away you know and then we could see what were the real persistent ones but right now i think kind of the way that um you know, the socio socioeconomic uh, health outcomes, the inequality that Indigenous people face. People think it's like this Gordian knot that they couldn't possibly undo. Like, we just don't know what to do. It's incredibly complicated. And I'm like, okay, well, we could start here. <laughs> and pressure your governments to do that, right? Um, and then for kids learning it's about stuff, there's an organization called the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society led by a wonderful advocate called Cindy Blackstock. Um, And again, I'm privileged to work on a case that she's leading about child welfare equality in Canada. And um, she has wonderful resources for teachers. She has wonderful resources for children and parents um, about equality for children and also about the residential school system and the current child welfare system um, that are really accessible and helpful and she has like a section on her website that's like seven free ways to make a difference um, etc so I mean there's no shortage of stuff you just kind of have to get curious and get into Google right like
0: yeah and I, I, I noticed that in your list it didn't say reach out to Maggie if you went to school with her in elementary school and ask <laughs> her box or let her know that you are one of the good ones or, and like, this is, I'm, I guess I'm putting my own experience on this. Um, there's a grief- I'm
1: sure you had this experience. And, yeah,
0: there's a grief and there is an emotional um, cost. Um, and Maggie, you're, you're probably a lot more poised in this area than I am because I don't speak on the issues that you do. Um, But sometimes when we have these conversations with people who've experienced the thing that we're just learning about, we forget that it affects, that conversation affects them more so than it affects the person who's learning. Um, So I I would just say be respectful um, as you learn. um, Be respectful um, with how you ask your questions and to whom you ask your questions. But as Maggie, Stuely pointed out, there's so many resources that you can get curious on your own, um, and and start learning the real history that we didn't we didn't learn in school.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I realized, of course, when this started happening last week, and like everyone from kindergarten is reaching out to a- empathize with me, that I sh- i sh- I do that all the time. I'm sure I do it to other people too, and I realized kind of how not it's not hurtful. It's just kind of onerous in some way. Um, that you know, whatever. Because then, of course, when we had the um the killing of the Muslim family, that was uh, an Islamophobic attack earlier this week. Of course, then I'm like, now I must text all my Muslim friends to let them know that I'm with them. And I'm then I was like, no, you don't need to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's hard. Like I think that's a to me that's like a very hard balance because I do think that some people want to hear stuff and certainly i love hearing from my close friends that they're thinking of me and that's nice but um but also sometimes i wonder is this is this like because i'm the only indigenous person you know and if so maybe think about that like
0: <laughs> and it, it's pretty obvious when you're in the situation like relationship wise what is your relationship to this person to the person have you talked to them at all in the last 10 years
1: well or you've even the in the last time year time right like <laughs>
0: you're reaching out to say hey sorry about the thing I'm I did a course and like (laughs) that one (laughs) that one I'm kind of (laughs) I read a thing let me tell you about it um so yes it is National Indigenous History Month um I want to thank our guests and one of our favorite ILT members Maggie for joining us today and we I know you have a busy week ahead so thank you so much so 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 much uh we love you I'm gonna open it up to Ron and Helen see if they have anything to add or.
2: I also want to thank Maggie and thank Helen for being here today. Thank you so much. I want to speak to all the white people out there who are probably (laughs) assuage their guilt and get over it real quick. You know what I mean? It's not a get over it real quick type of situation and it's okay to not know things. Uh, That doesn't mean that they didn't happen. You know what I mean? it's important to learn things and Mm -hmm. to act on them and to be the best person you can be um, without denying other people's lives and experiences in order for you to make yourself feel a little bit better. So I'll just put that out there because I think there's a lot of that kind of um, ass covering Mm -hmm. uh, that, that goes on when these types of things happen to marginalized communities, whether they be black people, indigenous people or whomever has been oppressed. So it's okay to not know things. It's okay to ask questions politely, respectfully. It's okay to receive new information and change your mind about things. You don't have to be who your great granddaddy said you should be, do you know what I mean? So I'm just putting that out there for for our audience members who happen to be (laughs)
0: white. <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> well, I know I have. I mean, I look very white as well. I'm reading "White Fragility" right now because I realize it's you know we all have to do the work,
2: uh-huh. so. and that's the thing. It is it is work, and we can't shy away from it. It it it's work that needs to be done. It's 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 hard work and it's painful work. You know what I mean? And that and and it doesn't need to happen all today because obviously this we're not fixing everything with this. You know what I mean? Um, but we need to be aware and we need to be open to change. Put that out there. With my thanks to both Helen and, and Maggie. Of
1: course. Helen,
0: do you want to thank Maggie a bunch of times too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'd really, I really like, yeah, like
3: to thank Maggie too in that. Yeah, I think that for me, it is really like, yeah, like getting more information and then acting on this new information going, I didn't know, and so when you know, know you can do better if you didn't you know so and then actively looking for that information as well so yeah and so thanks for 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 the information and and for next actions and and like ron said i think i think it's when you're instead of being embarrassed and kind of just kind of pushing everybody away and being like it's not my fault um i think kind of embracing this discomfort and going well okay this is i'm not it's uncomfortable. It's like this is a horrible thing that happened. It's like, well, now what can can we do to move forward?
1: Yeah, it is uncomfortable and we all benefit from it. Uh, we all benefit from the you know the oppression of indigenous people, and so do I, right? Um, but yeah, you can do things about it. You can actively work against those benefits uh, or work against the perpetuation of discrimination. so.
0: Well, this has been Fitness Junk Debunked Uh, today's episode. Episode six is indigenous health and the residential school system. Um, If you haven't listened to the first five episodes, I would recommend going back uh, and listening to the episodes because we do touch on important things. Our first episode talks about listening. So if you listen to this and it didn't really sink in, our first uh, podcast talks about the art of listening. And then you can come back to this podcast but with with our podcast we hope that you listen to them a couple times take notes um and learn and pass it on so thanks again for joining us that's number 50. (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) canadian thank you for being our social our (laughs) local social justice gym
0: (laughs) i love maggie so much um ron and i are actually going to try to get our second vaccine we'll see fingers crossed that works out and that's uh because maggie has had her back and always sends the text and is like go here go here go here because she cares and it's amazing to have um this caring this caring energy in our community and in our lives so for the twentieth 000 time thank you <laughs> and i'm gonna say that You're welcome. <laughs> fitness junk debunked and i'm gonna sign off with my favorite line Cookies! Eat no. so, no. <laughs> pizza. Find the power in the pride. Find, okay. your, find your power in the pride. And we will post um, links and resources to some of the things that we discussed uh, during today's podcast. Thanks so much, guests, again. And viewers, if you're watching this, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, thanks for listening. And we'll see you soon. Our next, oh, I got to go to the next podcast, which is on um, art. It is Pride Month, so we're going to discuss art next week, and our guest will be Jocelyn Reynolds.
2: Art and art and not we're not just discussing art; we're discussing its connection to Pride, to to Gay Pride.
0: Yeah, for, for Pride, um, and we're also talking with Eric Rich, A.K.A. Lucy Flawless. Um uh... Yeah, so we will talk with those guests next week, and uh, we'll hopefully have you listening next week. Bye for now. See you soon. Bye. Bye.